Hi everyone and welcome to There and Back Again. I'm Alistair Stevens and this, our 71st session, we continue to say farewell. Just a lot of farewells. We finally return to Rivendell and then we stop by the Prancing Pony in Bree before we return to the Shire in next week's reading. This week, the rest of Chapter 6 and Chapter 7 of Book 6 of The Lord of the Rings. Before we get right to it, though, a quick apology to everyone who emailed me comments and questions about my hasty and presumably ill-conceived discussion of the White Trees of Gondor in last week's session. It turns out that I misspoke, and I said that Isildur planted the first sapling taken from Nimloth of Numenor in Minas Anor, which was then destroyed when the tower was taken by Sauron's forces. I meant, of course, Minas Ithil, which became Minas Morgul, not Minas Anor, which became Minas Tirith. I apologize. Uh, this was perhaps the first time, I hope maybe the first time that I have mixed up the names of the two towers here in our 71 sessions discussing Tolkien's Legendarium, so I don't feel too bad about it, but don't worry. Rather than unpicking the history of the trees now, we are going to discuss them properly when we get to Isildur taking the fruit of Nimloth during the Akalabaeth in the Silmarillion, near the end of the Silmarillion. According to the schedule that I currently have prepared, we're going to be hitting that in about uh, the middle of May next year. But you should check out the wildly optimistic and now revised production schedule uh, for the rest of There and Back Again, which lays out 19 sessions for the whole of the Silmarillion, which is, let me tell you, wildly unlikely. That is a wildly optimistic schedule. So it's probably not going to be May if we hit it by July of next year, if we hit it by about this time next year, then I'm going to be both surprised and gratified by that. So we will talk more about the tree's apologies for the mix-up uh, and the reference to Minas Honor when I meant Minas Ethil. These things happen. Um... Also, before we get into it today, a question from Lucas, because we won't really have a better time to talk about this little incidental detail. Lucas writes, you mentioned in session 70 something about Aomer marrying someone in Prince Imrahil's family. Who is it? And how do we know? I love this detail, which is a great question, Lucas. Thank you so much. We know this because of Appendix A of The Lord of the Rings, where we get this little note, and from the Peoples of Middle-Earth, the last volume of the History of the Middle-Earth series compiled by Christopher Tolkien. Lothiriel is the daughter of Prince Imrahil. She was born in 2000. 1999 of the third age, making her 21 or 22 by the time she marries Aomer, sealing the relationship between Gondor and, more specifically, I suppose, the quasi-principality of Dol Amroth and Rohan. It's a really nice beat and another point of connection between Rohan and Gondor moving here into the fourth age, which I like quite a lot. And... This also revealed to me an incidental detail, because I've been thinking of Prince Imrahil, you know, everyone's favorite breakout character from this reading of The Lord of the Rings, as, you know, this this vibrant young man, like, as being akin to Eomer, as being akin to Faramir, akin in some, we in some measure, in some ways, to uh, Boromir. But that's not entirely fair, it turns out. Prince Imrahil was born in 2955 of the Third Age, so he was 64 or 65 during the events of the Return of the King. Now, he is, of course, partly possessed of the blood of Numenor, so we don't know quite how old old that would make him. Like, is he really, like human fourth age 64 or 65 or is he like Aragorn 64 or 65 where he's barely out of his teens well we don't know for sure but we do know that he dies in the year 34 of the third age at the age of 100 um, apparently from natural causes so he's no Aragorn and if you are thinking of him as this vibrant charming young buck here in the pages of The Return of the King, we might better think of him as a charming, vibrant silver fox here in the pages of Return of the King. I'm thinking George Clooney. Like, that is that is where I'm going with my conception of Prince Imrahil of Dol Amroth. And speaking of timelines and the counting of years, 
Hey, let's take a look at our timeline here. I have pulled on the slide in front of you some of the prominent events that we will discover here in uh, book six of The Lord of the Rings, running up to basically the end of this week's reading, pausing before we get to the Scouring of the Shire, which we will discuss next week. Fellowship of the Ring runs from the 12th of April in 3018 of the Third Age to February the 26th of 1319 in the Third Age, something like 10 months technically, of course, that isn't true. Technically, of course, we begin in September of 3001 of the Third Age with Bilbo's party, but I'm counting the start of Fellowship with Gandalf's return to the Shire and his conversation with Frodo about the true nature of the ring and the uh, passing of this burden onto Frodo, the picking up of the quest by Frodo in Chapter 2 of Book 1 of The Lord of the Rings. That happens on April 12th of 3018, and we run to the uh, the Sundering of the Fellowship on February 26th of 3019, something like 10 months there. The Return of the King, the third volume, in the Lord of the Rings series, uh, runs from March the 13th of 3019 to November the 3rd of 3019, which is technically the end of the War of the Ring, as we will discuss next week, or to October the 6th, 3021, which is the actual end of the book. So it runs either like eight months, if we're counting just the core text here, or something like 31 months if we go all the way to the last line of the novel. The Two Towers runs from February the 26th, 3019, to March the 13th, 3019, or basically two weeks. Like, 15 days is The Two Towers, which is why the chronology of The Two Towers, I think, is such a challenge to so many people. It is so difficult to keep straight what is happening and when, and how these two threads, these three threads, in fact, if we separate, you know, Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli and Merry and Pippin slash Treebeard, if we separate those two plots, then we basically have three concurrent plots unfolding through the... Uh, through the pages of the Two Towers, all in the course of 15 days. That is a lot of material. That is like a lot to keep straight, which is why I think the Two Towers can be so utterly bewildering. But that is the rough breakdown of the timeline of the book so far. Let's take a look at these dates here in the year 3019 of the Third Age, or 1419 in Shire Reckoning. On May the 1st, King Alisar is crowned at Minas Tirith. On June the 25th, King Alisar recovers the sapling of the White Tree on Mindolowin. Of course, that is the sign that the day that he has long awaited is actually coming, that it is actually going to happen. Then on Mid-Year's Day, you'll remember our discussion of the dates in Tolkien's Legendarium early in, in uh, there and back again, that uh, each of the 12 months have 30 days in Tolkien's conception, and then there are some extra days thrown into the middle. There are three extra days in the middle of summer, which do not belong to a month, and the middle day there is Midsummer's Day. So that's when that happens, right slap bang in the middle of the year. The Mid-Year's Day, the wedding of King Elisar and Arwen and Domiel in, uh, in Minas Tirith there uh, in Gondor, on August 10th, we get the funeral of Theoden King at Edoras. On August 22nd, the company spends some time at Isengard with Treebeard, and they depart from King Elessar, or more technically, King Elessar departs from them to return to Gondor. On August the 28th, the company meets Saruman on the road, which we will discuss. This is where we're kind of breaking into this week's reading. Actually, we're going to pick up on August the 22nd there. September 6th, the company reaches the mountains of Moria. They camp there for a few days. On September the 13th, Celeborn and Galadriel, who have accompanied them here on the western side of the Misty Mountains, go into Moria through the Redhorn Gate through the Carothras Gate, the gate that the Fellowship took way back when, way back in the pages of Fellowship of the Ring, to return to Lothlorien. On September the 21st, the company reaches Rivendell in the evening, then September the 22nd is, as is prominently noted in the text, Bilbo's 129th birthday. As is not noted in the text, it is also, of course, Frodo's 51st birthday. Then in October, on October the 5th, Gandalf, Frodo, Sam, Merry, and Pippin depart from Rivendell. On October the 6th, they cross the Bruin and they cross the Loudwater. They cross the Ford, which 
marks the boundary, if you like, of Rivendell. This is obviously a huge moment in our reading of Fellowship of the Ring, and a particularly huge moment in our viewing of the Fellowship of the Ring movie, of course, with uh, the inclusion of Arwen in that sequence in the movie, one of my favorite adaptive choices that uh, Peter Jackson et al. make in the context of the Fellowship of the Ring movie. That is also a very significant date. We'll discuss that as we get toward the end of tonight's reading. Then in October the 28th, on October the 28th, I should say, the company once more reaches Bree. We are almost, almost back again. We are almost there. Um, Shane is saying, where are the fireworks, Gandalf? Did no one in Gondor know that Gandalf throws an awesome party? You know, I was thinking about that too, because it does seem atypical that Gandalf would not include a firework display as part of the coronation, if not part of the wedding, right? Both of these seem like significant events for which Gandalf might provide some of his famous, famous, very good fireworks. And there are two explanations of this. One of which, well, three explanations of this, I suppose, right? The third one is perhaps the most sad, but we'll get to that in just a moment. The first explanation is that fireworks are for the Shire, fireworks are not for Gondor. That is to say that Gondor is not a part of the same kind of cultural landscape as the Shire, that, that Gandalf releasing fireworks and that kind of simple, joyous celebration in the Shire is concomitant with what we expect from the Shire. It is compatible with the Shire's outlook and the Shire's approach to celebration and to merriment, right? That seems completely consistent. We've seen that back in the initial meeting between Bilbo and Gandalf, back in The Hobbit, of course, and that, of course, at Bilbo's party, the fireworks are a huge standout, uh, standout success. Maybe Gondor just doesn't go in for fireworks. Maybe that's just not their speed. Maybe large noises in the sky is, is not a Gondorian tradition at this point. The second possible explanation is that, of course, the Gandalf that we have here is not the Gandalf who crafted fireworks for the Shire back in the day. That was Gandalf the Grey, itinerant wizard and, and uh, manipulator of dwarves and, and undertaker of great quests, right? That was Gandalf the Grey. This is Gandalf the White, and it is possible that his power being uncloaked in this way is distinct from the power that he had back when he was Gandalf the Grey. This is not to say that Gandalf couldn't make fireworks now. But in a sense, the crafting of fireworks has always been a little atypical for Gandalf. Yes, it is completely consistent with Gandalf's, you know, love of, of pipe smoking and the blowing of smoke rings in particular, right? This, this part of Gandalf's nature that speaks to comfort, the, the hobbitish part of Gandalf's nature, I suppose. But the crafting of fireworks is a little more ceremonic than it is Gandalfian. I suppose, right? The, the crafting and the making of things is not really something that we associate with Gandalf outside of his love of fireworks and his love of, of ominous explosions in the night sky over the Shire. So it is possible that that transition from grey to white has diminished Gandalf's interest in such trivial things or has diminished Gandalf's interest in the crafting of things. It is possible that he is now more pure than he was before and that there's a, uh, there's a line, there's some kind of dividing line between those two halves of his personality it would take a much more careful and studious reading, I think, to absolutely unpick the differences between Gandalf the Grey and Gandalf the White. And of course, many, many people have undertaken that task over the course of the last 50 years. There are lots of papers out there that you can read on exactly that topic. The third explanation is a little more somber. This is not Gandalf's time. This is not Gandalf's place anymore. He's going to address that in the last slide of tonight's reading, in fact, when he decides that instead of returning to the Shire, he's going to go off to talk to Tom Bombadil in the Old Forest. He's going to separate himself from the Hobbits and not have that that joyous homecoming, what they might expect to be a joyous homecoming, or might expect to be an adversarial homecoming. Either way, 
Gandalf should, by our understanding of, of narrative logic and our desire for narrative catharsis, Gandalf should be with the company of hobbits when they return to the Shire, but he's not because this is not his time. Though technically the calendar isn't going to roll over for another two years yet, it has still changed. Something has altered. There's something different in the air and in the earth and in the water, as Treebeard tells us. We are now either effectively or literally in the fourth age. We are in the age of man and Gandalf's power is well, diminished, is gone, is not what it was. Certainly his interest is not what it was. He is getting ready to depart from Middle-earth, his task done. We're going to talk more about that as we push on, but this lays out our timeline for, uh, for 3019 up to the end of today's reading. The plan is that next week we are going to delve into the scouring of the Shire, then the following week we are going to get to the Grey Havens, then we are going to spend two weeks, I promise, just two weeks, on the appendices. We'll spend a whole week on Appendix A, where there's a lot of narrative and a ton of incidental detail about which we care passionately. And then we're going to spend one week looking at all of the other appendices, basically looking at languages and looking at family trees and looking at all of the, the little, uh, the world building that Professor Tolkien has, has given to us here. Let's pick up, though, with uh, Chapter 6. Let's pick up from our reading last time with a farewell to Treebeard. Then Treebeard said farewell to each of them in turn, and he bowed three times slowly and with great reverence to Celeborn and Galadriel. It is long, long since we met by stock or by stone of Vanamir, Vanamelion, Nostari, he said. It is sad that we should meet only thus at the ending, for the world is changing. I feel it in the water, I feel it in the earth, and I smell it in the air. I do not think we shall meet again. And Celeborn said, I do not know, eldest. But Galadriel said, Not in Middle-earth, nor until the lands that lie under the wave are lifted up again, then in the Willemedes of, Tess of Tessarinen, excuse me, we may meet in the spring. Farewell. Last of all, Merry and Pippin said goodbye to the old aunt, and he grew gayer as he looked at them. Well, my merry folk, he said, will you drink another draught with me before you go? Indeed we will, they said. And he took them aside into the shade of one of the trees, and there they saw that a great stone jar had been set, and Treebeard filled three bowls, and they drank, and they saw his strange eyes look at them over the rim of the bowl. Take care, take care, he said, for you have already grown since I saw you last. And they laughed and drained their bowls. Well, goodbye, he said, and don't forget that if you hear any news of the Entwives in your land, you will send word to me. Then he waved his great hands to all the company and went off into the trees. So, a slide of two halves here, right? A slide of Celeborn and Galadriel and God, I can't help but love the way that Celeborn is treated by the narrative voice here. This is a continuation of everything that we discussed back in Lothlorien, where Celeborn, for all that he is Lord of Lothlorien kind of gets the short end of the stick when it comes to, you know, great declamations, when it comes to great oratory, right? Treebeard gets this whole gorgeous thing. It is long, long since we met by Stalker by Stone, Avanimar Vanamalian Nostari, right? Uh, Avanimar Vanamalian Nostari, he's speaking in Sindarin to the elves, which is a gorgeous little beat here. It means beautiful people, parents of beautiful children, which is just... It's just lovely, right? Uh, beautiful people, parents of beautiful children. It is sad that we should meet only thus at the ending, for the world is changing. Why is it the ending? For the world is changing. He's drawing a logical conclusion between these two things. I feel it in the water, I feel it in the earth, and I smell it in the air. He's a half step away from launching into love is all around there, but thankfully he doesn't. I do not think that we shall meet again. And Caliborn said, I do not know, eldest. But Galadriel said, right? Shut up, Caliborn, is what Galadriel says, because Galadriel, of course, does something far more beautiful and far more 
far more potent, far more powerful here. Not in Middle Earth, she says. Not until the lands that lie under the wave are lifted up again. Then in the willow meads of Tisaranen we shall meet in the spring. Farewell. The lands that lie under the wave here, the lands that will be lifted up again, she is not here referring to Numenor. She is referring to Beleriand. Uh, Beleriand is basically wiped out um, halfway through the First Age, uh, way back when. It is uh, submerged. It is swallowed by the sea during the War of Wrath. This is the war between the Valar and Morgoth. This is like the huge uh, apocalyptic war in in the First Age, the cycle of apocalypse and renewal, I suppose, that we see in Tolkien's, uh, Tolkien's history of his own legendarium here. Only the uh, the edge of Beleriand remains. This is out west beyond the Grey Mountains. We'll maybe talk a little about the geography of what is west of the Shire by the time that we get to the Grey Havens in the last chapter of Book 6 of The Lord of the Rings. But Gladriel is doing something even more specific here, right? She's not just pulling this out. Then in the Willowmeads of Tessaranen we may meet in the spring, she says. Farewell. You may remember that in chapter four of book three, the chapter entitled Treebeard, he sings as a part of his song, In the willow meads of of Tessarinan I walked in the spring. Ah, the sight and the smell of the spring in Nantasarian. And I said that it was good. Here Galadriel is demonstrating an understanding of and a respect for Entish culture. She is recognizing Treebeard's song here, which is perhaps surprising. This is this is actually kind of a shocking development. This shows how deeply connected Galadriel is to the landscape, to the old powers, certainly, but also the oldest nature of Middle Earth on both sides of the Misty Mountains, I guess, right? This is um this is a powerful evocation of Galadriel's connection to the earth. This is a part of the impulse that leads Galadriel to create her her preservation of Lothlorien, right? This this artificial theme park version of of the West here in Middle Earth. This is what leads her to do so is because she is still thinking of Beleriand. She is still thinking of the lands to the West. She's thinking of Valinor and the Undying Lands. It's a gorgeous moment of connection, and I love it very very much. It's it's just Galadriel being the greatest, just the greatest and most regal person um, outside of of. King Elisar and Queen Arwen, I suppose. Outside of their two personages, Galadriel is, and, and possibly even including their two personages, Galadriel is by far the most regal person that we see in the pages of The Lord of the Rings. This is, of course, classic condescension, right? She is, is connecting across a gulf, connecting across a bridge here with, uh, with Treebeard. Then, of course, we get the turn to Merry and Pippin. Last of all, Merry and Pippin said goodbye to the old aunt, and he grew gayer as he looked at them. Well, my merry folk, will you drink another draft with me before you go? Right, the offering of hospitality before separation. This is a much more intimate act than his formal words of farewell to Caliborn and Galadriel. And lo, they drink their entish drafts. Powerful stuff, because, of course, Merry and Pippin, as Sam has just confirmed, have already grown three inches apiece by drinking the Entish Draft in Fangorn Forest originally. Do they grow another three inches from taking this Entish Draft again? Is it more than that? Well, we cannot say, but we will know. We will have confirmed for us later that they are of significantly improved stature by the time that they return to the Shire. But yes, they are. They are all up for it. Take care, take care, for you have already grown since I saw you last. And they laughed and drained their bowls. They're like, yeah, we're super big now for Hobbits. This is great. We're going to start the first Hobbit basketball team. That's what we're going to do. And we are going to own, let me tell you, on the court, we are going to be, we're going to be just mean. We're going to be Trey Trey's from downtown from uh, Merry and Pippin here. Well, goodbye, he said. And don't forget that if you hear any news of the Entwives in your land, you will send word to me. Then he waved his great hands to all the company and went off into the trees. And so Treebeard, too, departs from our narrative. Erica saying here, 
<laughs> Shane's saying there are foot globe trotters, which is very, very good, Shane. Thank you for that. Um, yes, uh, Marshall's saying the friendship between Treebeard, arguably the oldest creature in Middle Earth, right? Celeborn said, uh, Celeborn said, I do not know eldest. That is not just a a casual honorific, I think. It, it's not elder, right? It is eldest. He is recognizing the superlative quality of Treebeard in that one regard, and presumably in many other regards too. But yes, the, the, the relationship there um, between the uh, the oldest creature in Middle-earth and the two younger hobbits, Pippin being the youngest, is heartwarming, says Marshall, and I am absolutely inclined to agree. It's just gorgeous. Varying of Khand observing Treebeard talks to Mary and Pippin the way C.S. Lewis spoke to his students. There is some speculation that the... Um, that the hums and the hums of um, of Treebeard are actually evocative of C.S. Lewis. That there is actually a deliberate connection there. That that, uh, that perhaps Professor Tolkien is, on one hand, being a little playful with his with his old friend of the Inklings, and perhaps uh, perhaps just has been inspired. Right, just just recognizes C.S. Lewis's um, oratorical style as being one that is redolent of of authority and gravitas, and is kind of putting that in the mouth of of the eldest here. So that is our parting from Treebeard. I'm not going to cry, you guys. I'm not going to weep over the parting of Treebeard, even though I am very tempted. And of course, the Entwives, just terrible and heartbreaking and awful. Oh, I was going to read Erica's. Uh, let me see here. Um, where is Erica? Uh, Erica saying, I think it would be kind of funny, too, if the ants found the Entwives and it doesn't work again. Like a couple who gets divorced gets together again and realize they got it right the first time. <laughs> We have found the Entwives, and we're not really into them, is the problem. There's a lot to work out. Maybe they can go to Galadriel and Caliborn for some couples counseling, right? Because if anyone is equipped to bridge the gap in a in a domestic partnership, it is Galadriel, right? She spends all of her time with Caliborn. You guys, like, all of her time with Caliborn. Yeah, I think she could probably offer a word or two. I think that um, Marshall here, Marshall is saying, is that speculation? I thought it was confirmed by the contemporaries. Yes, it has been confirmed by the contemporaries, but never confirmed by uh, by Professor Tolkien himself. So it is, it's in that category of, yes, this is this is the uh, the connection between C.S. Lewis and Treebeard, of course. This is um, one of those things that is, yeah, it's probably true, but never actually, actually confirmed. Yes. Um, and people might, uh, oh, Goldberry, the marriage counselor. That's a great suggestion, says James. Yes, okay. If anyone is more equipped than Galadriel, it is probably Goldberry. Goldberry, right? Uh, yes. Okay. <laughs> let's uh, let's keep pushing onward here to say farewell to Aragorn. The travelers now rode with more speed, and they made their way toward the gap of Rohan, and Aragorn took leave of them at last close to that very place where Pippin had looked into the stone of Orthanc. The hobbits were grieved at this parting, for Aragorn had never failed them, and he had been their guide through many perils. I wish we could have a stone that we could see all our friends in, said Pippin, and that we could speak to them from far away. Only one now remains that you could use," answered Aragorn. "For you would not wish to see what is in the stone. You would not wish to see what the stone of Minas Tirith would show you. But the Palantir of Orthanc, the king, will keep to see what is passing in his realm and what his servants are doing. But do not, for do not forget, Peregrine Took, that you are a knight of Gondor, and I do not release you from your service. You are going now on leave, but I may recall you. And remember, dear friends of the Shire, that my realm lies also in the north, and I shall come there one day." Then Aragorn took leave of Caliborn and Galadriel, and the lady said to him, Elfstone, through darkness you have come to your hope, and have now all your desire. Use well the days. But Caliborn said, Kinsman, farewell. May your doom be other than mine, and your treasure remain with you to the end. With that they parted, and it was then the time of sunset. And when, after a while, they turned and looked back, they saw the king of the west sitting upon his horse with his knights about him. And the falling sun shone upon them and made all their harnesses to gleam like red gold, and the white mantle of Aragorn was turned to a flame. Then Aragorn took the green stone and held it up, and there came a green fire from his hand. 
Aragorn at the last, of course, holding aloft the Elfstone, holding aloft the LSR to signal his farewell, to signal his departure. So the Palantiri, of course, you'll remember Pippin looking into the Palantir and all but revealing himself to, uh, to Sauron way back when, when first we were at Isengard, what seems like a million years ago, but actually wasn't that long ago in the, uh, in the scheme of things. So it turns out that the Stone of Minas Tirith has been corrupted. This is the stone that Denethor was using, of course, that whatever enchantment was laying upon the Palantir of Minas Tirith, the Palantir of, of, uh, of Osgiliath back in the day, presumably, right? Presumably that's what the Palantir was, uh, was uh, where the Palantir was originally housed. That Palantir has been corrupted. You would not like uh, what it shows you, but the Palantir of Orthanc, the one that Saruman was using, the king will now keep to see what is passing in his realm and what his servants are doing. And then we get this lovely uh, observation of Peregrine's role here, right? Where we're transitioning, again, Peregrine took, right? Where we're getting back to Peregrine, son of Paladin. We're raising the, uh, the rhetorical level here again. For do not forget, Peregrine took, that you are a knight of Gondor and I do not release you from your service. You are going now on leave, but I may recall you. And remember, dear friends of the Shire, that my realm lies also in the north and I shall come there one day, right? He's referring, of course, to the, uh, the fallen kingdom of Arnor in the north, which, spoilers, he will actually refound and reunite with Gondor in the south. Pippin is not going to be released from his oath. Pippin is going to continue to be a knight of Gondor. He has sworn his oath, and for all that Denethor released him, well, we don't actually see Pippin take another follow-up oath to Aragorn. But since Pippin holds to his oath, even after Denethor tries to release him, the oath still holds, the oath still stands. That is part of what is... Uh, indicated by the transferring of the scepter from Faramir to Aragorn. You'll remember at the coronation, uh, or immediately prior to the coronation, Faramir surrenders his scepter of office uh, to uh, to Aragorn, and rather than denying it or refusing it, Aragorn takes it and gives it back. That is a, a very important bit of, of kingly authority there being, being indicated, being symbolized by the passing of that. So yes, Pippin's oath still holds true. He is still a knight of Gondor, and I do not release you from your service. You're going now on leave on an indefinite leave. Like, I'm not going to hold you to, like, you know, serve the the good of Gondor in the Shire. You can just kick back and smoke a little bit and just, you know, do your thing, Pippin. It's going to be just fine. But hey, maybe someday, maybe someday I'm going to need you and I'm going to call you to service. Remember your oath. This is affectionate. I, I take this as being affectionate anyway. Then Aragorn took leave of Caliborn and Galadriel, and the lady said to him, Elfstone, through darkness you have come to your hope and have now all your desire. Use well the days. This is maybe the beat in the entire book when Celeborn gets the upper hand. This is made, rhetorically speaking, right? Not, not politically speaking or even in terms of their personal relationship. But this is the moment when Celeborn says something more profound than Galadriel. Galadriel just notes, yeah, you've come through a tough time, right? Through, uh, out of darkness, out of doubt, you rode Aragorn, king of Gondor, right? King Elessar. Um, use well your days. This is, you've got everything. Be mindful of that. Be grateful and put this time to good use, you mortal man. And of course, in the recognition of Aragorn's mortality here, we also get a subtle recognition of Arwen's choice, of, of Luthien's choice to become mortal and to live and to die, the bitter and the sweet alongside her love, King Elessar. But Celeborn said, kinsman, farewell. Kinsman, of course, because Celeborn and Galadriel are married, and Galadriel is Arwen's uh, grandmother, so, you know. Um, Celeborn said, kinsman, farewell. May your doom be other than mine, and your treasure remain with you to the end. Um, Galadriel, <laughs> spoilers for the very end of the book, I guess, 
Galadriel is going to take the ship. Galadriel is going to depart from Middle-earth uh, in 3021 of the Third Age. In two years' time, Galadriel is going to take ship along with some other characters uh, into the West. Celeborn is not. Celeborn is going to kick around for a good while yet. We'll talk more about that when we actually get to their parting. But uh, Celeborn is going to linger in Middle-earth. May your doom be other than mine and your treasure remain with you to the end. Celeborn here is recognizing the... The gift that Aragorn, uh, the, the the gift that Arwen has given Aragorn, in a sense, right? The tragedy of that gift, the sadness and the beauty of that gift, that his treasure, that his love, that his his wife and partner will stay with him until the end. Celeborn knows; he senses already. Presumably, there were some conversations on the road from Lothlorien about Galadriel's future, right? That she's going to go into the West and remain Galadriel, and that's great and all, but um, what am I going to do? I still have, like, some projects. I, like, I still have to, to do the guttering back in Lothlorien, and I'm building this really great man cave, like, out in the garage, and, and you know, there's a bumper pool table that's getting delivered next Thursday, and I just want to hang out a little bit. Celeborn and Galadriel are going to be parted in a way that Aragorn and Arwen are not, though Aragorn and Arwen ultimately, of course, will be parted too, though reunited. That's part of the gift of, of Arwen's mortality, right? Is that she will die, but she will also, unlike the other elves, go on to her last reward. She will go on, she will leave behind the frame of Middle-earth and go into paradise, right? She will, she will, let's not split hairs about this, right? It's never defined, uh, it's never defined uh, terribly specifically in Tolkien's Legendarium, like what happens to men after they die, but they go on to their final reward. They go to heaven, in effect. And that is going to happen to Arwen too, as it happened to Luthien Tenuvia. And so they part, and it was at it was then the time of sunset, because of course it was. And when, after a while, they turned and looked back, they saw the king of the west sitting upon his horse with his knights about him, and the falling sun shone upon them and made their harness to gleam like red gold, and the white mantle of Aragorn was turned to a flame. Then Aragorn took the green stone and held it up, and there came a green fire from his hand. Mythic. This is Aragorn being rendered for the last time in the sight of the hobbits in appropriately mythic terms here, as we say farewell. Let's uh, take a bit of a turn here and move on from Aragorn, from King Alessar and his, his uh, companion knights here to our next encounter on the road. Because it turns out that uh, seven days out from Orthanc, we bump into an old friend. Six days, I guess. <laughs> it is the seventh day. On the sixth day since their parting from the king, they journeyed through a wood climbing from the hills at the feet of the misty mountains and now marched, that now marched on their right hand. As they came out again into the open country at sundown, they overtook an old man leaning on a staff, and he was clothed in rags of grey or dirty white, and at his heels went another beggar, slouching and whining. "'Well, Saruman,' said Gandalf, "'where are you going?' "'What is that to you?' he answered. "'Will you still order my goings, or are you not content with my ruin?' "'You know the answers,' said Gandalf. "'No, and no. "'But in any case, the time of my labours now draws to an end. "'The king has taken on the burden. "'If you had waited at Orthanc, you would have seen him, "'and he would have shown you wisdom and mercy. "'And all the more reason to have left sooner,' said Saruman, "'for I desire neither of him. "'Indeed, if you wish for an answer to your first question, "'I am seeking a way out of his realm.' "'Then once more you are going the wrong way,' said Gandalf, "'and I see no hope in your journey. "'But will you scorn our help?' for we offer it to you. To me, said Saruman. Nay, pray do not smile at me. I prefer your frowns. And as for the lady here, I do not trust her. She always hated me and schemed for your part. I do not doubt that she has brought you this way to have the pleasure of gloating over my poverty. Had I been warned of your pursuit, I would have, deemed, I would have denied you the pleasure. Saruman, said Galadriel, we have other errands and other cares that, that seem to us more urgent than hunting for you. 
Say rather that you are overtaken by good fortune, for now you have a last chance. It will truly be the last. I, if it truly be the last, I am glad, said Saruman, for I shall be spared the trouble of refusing it again. All my hopes are ruined, but I would not share yours if you have any. Wilhelm Scream saying, once more, you are going the wrong way. Gandalf can't resist winding him up a bit. Uh, yeah, like a little bit, but also he is speaking the truth. Oh, you're going like north and west? Um... Real bad news, Saruman, actually. You are going in literally the worst direction. The only direction that you could have gone that was worse was, like, southeast into Gondor itself. If you want to be free of the influence of the king, the king of the reunited kingdoms of north and south, then you have to go east, my dude. You have to, or, or far, far into the south. Like, those are your two choices. Heading west, like, like northwest out of the Gap of Rohan, out from Isengard, up the flank of the Misty Mountains. This is not a good choice for you, my dude. We know why you took this path, because of course Saruman would not have departed from Orthanc and turned east because, oh, there are Rohirrim there, and the Rohirrim do not love Saruman gladly. And then even if he managed to evade them, he's either going to turn north and hit Lothlorien, or he's going to turn south and hit Gondor, and neither of those are good options for Saruman now. He is not just... I completely take him at his word that he is trying to seek an exit from Aragorn's kingdom here, but he's also trying to evade the forces of Aragorn that are still present, or those forces allied to Aragorn that are still present in this region. Overtaking Saruman, of course, we're not done with Saruman, right? Let's just acknowledge that immediately. We are not done with Saruman. We're going to uh, to uh, have a little more dealing with Saruman next week as we get to the scourging of the Shire, but this is an appropriate poetic comeuppance for Saruman here, right? As they came out again into the open country at sundown, they overtook an old man leaning on a staff and he was clothed in rags of grey or dirty white and at his heels went another beggar slouching and whining. The best fate for Saruman, for all that he has done, is that he is now stuck with Wormtongue, that the two of them are just travelling across open country, heading nowhere in particular, like where are they going to try and get away from Aragorn? This is not going to work out well for either one of them. And of course, it is only this encounter arguably, it is only this encounter that spurs Saruman to go to the Shire and to, to undertake the scourging of the Shire, which we'll get to in, in due course, right? Um, what is that to you? Will you still order my goings and are you not content with my ruin? You know the answer, said Gandalf. No, and no, no, I will not still order your goings. And no, I am not content with your ruin. This is brilliant sassy Gandalf, right? That is, it is so understated and it's so easy to lean into this idea of Gandalf in his kindness, Gandalf in his magnificence, Gandalf in his kingliness, that it's easy to overlook that second no, but that second no is pivotal. Will you still order my goings? No, I will not. Are you not content with my ruin? No, I am not. But in any case, the time of my labors now draws to an end. The king has taken on the burden. Which burden are we referring to here? Well, it seems to me that we're referring to, remember Gandalf talking to Denethor about also being a steward, about being a steward of all of Middle-earth? Well, King LSR, King Aragorn has now taken up that burden. If you had waited at Orthanc, you would have seen him and he would have shown you wisdom and mercy because he's the king, my dude. He's the real deal. He's the guy. And he would have shown you wisdom and mercy because that's who he is. Then all the more reason to have left sooner, said Saruman, for I desire, I desire neither of him. Indeed, if you wish for an answer for your first question, I'm seeking a way out of his realm. Well, you're going the wrong way. This is really bad. And then Saruman turns on Galadriel. Of course, 
Saruman, Gandalf, Galadriel, and Elrond have had for the longest time a really solid working relationship, right? They have been the White Council. They are the ones who cast the Necromancer out of Dol Guldur. They are the ones who have been keeping the peace or trying to keep the peace in Middle-earth for a thousand years. They have known each other for a long, long time at this point. But of course, Saruman is fearful and, and paranoid and believes that Galadriel has turned against him, even though we have no reason to believe that that is in fact the case. As for the lady here, I do not trust her. She always hated me and schemed for your part, right? Scheming to elevate Gandalf above Saruman, which even Gandalf wasn't scheming to, to be elevated above Saruman at any point, right? Not until Saruman's treachery is revealed in its fullest measure does Gandalf apparently even hesitate, which is obviously something that gives us a huge continuity problem when we get to Peter Jackson's adaptation of the Hobbit trilogy. It is a continuity problem which I think is managed really beautifully in the frame of, of the Hobbit trilogy. It's one of the, the, again, right, let us, the Hobbit trilogy is not great. It is not good. It descends into self-parody in its final act. Like, I really don't like the Battle of the Five Armies. I think it's, it's, it's boisterous and it's action-packed, but it's not in any way like narratively cohesive or really narratively satisfying, not until we get right to the very, very end of that movie. There's a lot of a lot of there before we get any back again in uh, in the third Hobbit movie in particular. But the handling of Saruman in the first movie is really sharp. It's really on point. I, I like very much how that is how that is laid out. Um, Nay, pray do not smile at me. I prefer your frowns, says Saruman. And of course, he's going to uh, to take off. Um, Marshall saying, uh, Saruman is so pitiful in this scene. He's being given the option of forgiveness of extremely grievous sins. He started a war, after all, and the offer of return to goodness, and all he can do is lash out and spew vileness rather than swallow his pride and accept. You're absolutely right, Marshall. This is... This is the vice of Saruman. It is exactly this kind of pride. And it's not just the starting of the war, right? It's not just that he has sought to contest his will against Sauron, sought, in effect, to become the new Dark Lord himself, right? Let's not be under any illusion here. That is why he is searching for the Ring of Power. It's because he wants to claim the Ring of Power and use the Ring of Power. It is possibly well-intentioned, and it is possibly a a scheme that has been concocted in part because of the long-distance influence of the ring, right? We're being very generous if that's the explanation that we want to adopt for Saruman's behavior. But yes, he has he has conducted himself poorly. He has, you know, uh, imprisoned Gandalf against his will. He has scourged Isengard, which I think is actually one of the, the greater sins that he has created, creating the Urukai, right? Saruman's uh, crimes are innumerable at this point, but still forgiveness, still peace. You can come back. Like, you are not corrupted beyond the pale. And this does get us into, again, some very complicated questions of morality, some very complicated questions of redemption and of corruption. And again, you know, I'm hesitating lest we start talking about the origin of orcs again, but this is part of that same continuum, right? Saruman, for all that he is, he has done, is being offered at the very least wisdom and kindness here, right? And then Galadriel, say rather you are overtaken by good fortune, for now you have a last chance. Who is going to speak more eloquently of a last chance? Who is going to speak more eloquently of a final test than Galadriel, right? Who was given a last chance? Who was confronted with her final test? A test which she herself passed. Galadriel, for all that we adore her and for all that she is a figure of, of light in the world of Middle-earth, is not in many ways a good person prior to passing the test, prior to passing the temptation of the ring. She is a problematic figure in Middle-earth. Like, as we've discussed many times before, the creation and the preservation of Lothlorien is a problematic action. The 
the belief of the Noldor in the creation of a garden of Middle-earth is like a problematic philosophy within the pages of the Silmarillion, which we'll get to, as I said, in just a, yeah, as Marshall's saying, cannot wait to talk about Galadriel in the context of the Silmarillion. No, me neither. Glomenson is saying, oh, Glomenson is picking up a comment from Variag of Khan. Let me see if I can scroll back and find that original comment. Gosh, I think it's a distance back. I'm not sure that I can find it here. Um, I'll just read uh, Glomenson's comment here. I would say the rangers don't accompany them from Rivendell to Bree based on all the references to Gandalf and the Hobbits without reference to the rangers and the remark that they traveled on the road by themselves but scared off any robbers because of their martial attire. That is something that we will definitely note when we get to uh, to Bree, of course. Yes. Um, perhaps the rangers went to Rivendell and then spread from there, but beside Frodo's remark, there's no reference to the rangers on the return journey. Yeah, I think the, the rangers do not. In fact, we get, a, uh, we get a specific reference to the four Hobbits and Gandalf departing from Rivendell. So I'm pretty confident that at that point, yes, the, uh, the company that is heading north includes the Dunedain, includes members of the Dunedain, perhaps not all of the members of the Dunedain, but we're not sure about that. But uh, yes, uh, there's no reference to the Rangers uh, traveling west with the, the company when they leave Rivendell, and nor should they, really. There's no real reason for the Rangers to to travel west. Indeed, the work that is to be done in the north begins at Rivendell. That is, that is where they ought to be, yeah. Um, good, good. Let me see here. Um, Okay, I think let's, uh, yeah, many of the rangers died, says Jackie. Yes, exactly, exactly. Well, uh, yes, I wasn't even necessarily talking about the ones that were left on the field of battle, as it were, but uh, yes, the, the yeah, at the Battle of Pelennor, Jackie confirms, yeah. I wasn't even necessarily thinking of the uh, the rangers that died during the battle at Minas Tirith, but, but also it's unclear whether all of the surviving rangers, all of the Dunedain of the North, do they return north again? Uh, where is their allegiance? Like, Aragorn is the king of the North, even when he's in the South. So... Are they supposed to return? Are they all obligated to return? I mean, they have families, right? They, we don't bring every single member of the Dunedain down. We bring the fighting men. That's confirmed to us when the, the Dunedain show up for the first time. So yeah, we just we just don't know is the answer to that. We just don't know. Um, let's get to our last sequence here with, uh, with Saruman. As the wretched pair passed by the company, they came to the hobbits, and Saruman stopped and stared at them, but they looked at him with pity. So... You have come to gloat too, have you, my urchins? He said. You don't care what a beggar lacks, do you? For you have all you want, food and fine clothes and the best weed for your pipes. Oh yes, I know, I know where it comes from. You would not give a pipeful to a beggar, would you? I would, if I had any, said Frodo. You can have what I've got left, said Mary, if you will wait a moment. He got down and searched in the bag at his saddle. Then he handed to Saruman a leather pouch. Take what there is, he said. You're welcome to it. It came from the flotsam of Isengard. Mine, mine, yes, and dearly bought, cried Saruman, clutching at the pouch. This is only a repayment in token for you took more, I'll be bound. Still a beggar must be grateful if a thief returns him even a morsel of his own. Well, it will serve you right when you come home if you find things less good in the south farthing than you would like. Long may your land be short of leaf. Thank you, said Mary. In that case, I will have my pouch back, which is not yours and has journeyed far with me. Wrap the weed in a rag of your own. One thief deserves another, said Saruman, and turned his back on Mary and kicked Wormtongue and went away toward the wood. Well, I like that, said Pippin. Thief indeed. What of our claim for waylaying, wounding, and orc dragging us through Rohan? Oh, said Sam. And bought, he said. Oh, I wonder. I don't like the sound of what he said about the south farthing. It's time we got back. I'm sure it is, said Frodo. But we can't go any quicker if we are to see Bilbo. I'm going to Rivendell first, whatever happens. 
again, another indication of the connection between uh, between Saruman and the Shire, the South Farthing in particular. Of course, you'll remember Merry and Pippin gleefully taking Saruman's uh, pipeweed when they uh, when they sacked uh, Isengard back with the uh, back with the ants, and that is, of course, the uh, providence of the pipeweed that Merry and Pippin have been carrying all this good long time. You would not give a pipeful to a beggar, would you? I would if I had any," said Frodo. Frodo here. Speaking honestly, it seems to me. This is not Frodo like equivocating. Ah, <laughs> uh, sorry. Yeah, uh, pipeweed? No, don't uh don't don't partake myself. You understand? No, never really been a big smoker. No. I would if I had any strikes me as being completely honest. This is generosity. And this is recognition of well, two modes for Frodo, I think. And these are two modes which are going to continue to be significant as we reach Rivendell, as we reach Bree, as we return to the Shire. Two modes for Frodo. The first and most obvious, of course, is that, well, Frodo has recently come from Minas Tirith. He's recently come from the company of King Elessar, right? He is, he is great in stature. He is a hero of the age, a hobbity hero of the age, yes, but still a hero of the age. He is possessed of a good and noble heart. But let's not forget, Frodo has not been transformed by his journey. Frodo was always a gentle hobbit. He was always a good hobbit. He was always a good member of his community. He treated those in his employ kindly. We know that because of Sam's undying loyalty to him, of course, and also the respect with which he is uh, regarded by the other members of his community. Like, Uncle Bilbo may be, like, a figure of, of a certain kind of mockery and certainly a figure of legend, but Frodo, like, okay, we might worry about him associating with, with, uh, with Mad Baggins, right, who disappears in a flash and returns with bags of money, as the legend has it, following, uh, following Bilbo's depart uh, departure from the Shire. We might worry about Frodo's association with him, with Gandalf, with other nefarious sorts, and maybe he goes out walking and maybe he hangs out with else, but Frodo is still, like, a good person. This is a combination, I think, of Frodo's magnificent instinct, right, in the heroic mold, and also his gentility and his courtesy and his charity as a good hobbit. He is just a good person and doesn't hold uh, Saruman responsible. Is there a recognizable beat here of, of sympathy rather than pity for Saruman, right? Is Frodo recognizing that Saruman like him, was corrupted by the mind and the pressure and the weight and the power of Sauron? Well, maybe. We might be inclined to read that as an explanation, actually. But we might also, I think, find sufficient explanation in Frodo's relative gentility, right? Saruman is... Now that Saruman's staff has been broken, which has apparently, you know, deprived him of the bulk of his power, if not his power in its entirety. Well, the bulk of his power, but not his voice, crucially, as Gandalf points out, right? When Gandalf says to Treebeard about Saruman leaving Orthanc, he says, oh no, he used the voice on you. That is definitely, right, another moment of connection here between The Lord of the Rings and uh, and Frank Herbert's Dune, which I'm discussing in the patron-exclusive book club. If you visit patreon.com slash pointnorthmedia, you can find the uh, five sessions of discussion we've had about Dune already. But I'm thinking, of course, of the Bene Gesserit voice, right? This is apparently one of the powers that Saruman has. And of course, because Saruman's a man, does that mean that Saruman is the Kwisatz Haderach? No, it definitely doesn't. But it does mean that he has a power similar to the voice of the Bene Gesserit. And then, of course, the taking of the pouch... You'll note the uh, you'll note Mary's initial uh, initial charitable instinct. Take what there is, he says. You're welcome to it. It came from the flotsam of Isengard, and Saruman flips out. Right? This is only a repayment in token for you two. More, I'll be bound. Still, a beggar must be grateful if a thief returns even a morsel of his own. Well, it'll serve you right when you come home if you find things less good in the south farthing than you would like. Long may your land be short of leaf. Thank you, said Mary. In that case, I will have my pouch back. Like initially, it seems as though uh, it seems as though Mary is also offering the pouch. But in this case, you can give me the pouch back. I'll stand by my offer of giving you. Pouch 
pipe weed, right? I'm not going to renege on on that offer. That would be that would be discourteous. That would be unhobbitish. But uh, I said that I would give you leaf, and you can give me the pouch back. You can wrap it in a dirty rag of your own. One thief deserves another, said Saruman, turned his back on Mary and kicked Wormtongue and went away toward the road. And then we get the transition back into hobbitishness, right? Well, I like that thief indeed. What of our claim for waylaying, wounding an orc, dragging us through Rohan? Like, if you can describe the events that happened to Merry and Pippin at the beginning of the Two Towers in the most hobbitish terms, being orc-dragged through Rohan is probably as close as you're going to get. It's really quite gorgeous hobbitry here. But then Sam pivots again. And Bot, he said, how I wonder. I don't like the sound of what he said about the South Farthing. It's time we got back. But Frodo is fixed. Frodo knows where he is going. Why is Frodo so intent on getting back to Bilbo? Well, Bilbo is his uncle. Bilbo is his family, of course, right? He is still closer to Bilbo than he is to Sam, to Mary, to Pippin, to Gandalf, to anyone in the world. He is closer to, closer to Bilbo. But I think we would also fairly interpret this as being ring-oriented, I suppose, right? He wants to see Bilbo and tell Bilbo that his burden has been laid down. He knows that Bilbo knows, right? He knows that the news has passed to Rivendell. That's why Arwen and Elrond showed up at Minas Tirith in the first place, right? He knows that the news has traveled, but he wants to tell Bilbo that the, the burden has been laid down and, of course, to see him too. Let's say farewell to... Uh, let's say farewell to Celeborn and Galadriel. We're just splitting our company still further here as we move north. Here now for seven days they tarried. Oh, here now is at the Redhorn Gate. This is at the uh, at the Carothras Gate here in Holland. Of course, we don't really mention this part, but you'll remember that before we travel into the mines of Moria, we note the uh, the elven goodness that lingers in Holland here on the western flank of the Misty Mountains. Of course, this was uh, this was uh, an elven community of of great ancientry, right? That has has since fallen into disrepair, but the landscape remembers the elves and is still a good and joyous place. This is We discussed this in part before we went into the Mines of Moria for the first time back in the pages of the Fellowship of the Ring. We don't really discuss it here, but this is why they stay here. This is not just like, oh, we're camping out by the watch from the water. We're just going to hang out here by this rank pool uh, actually in the shadow of the Red Horn Gate. No, we're in Holland where it's nice and beautiful and resting after a long journey is probably a pretty good idea at this point. Here now for seven days they tarried for the time was at hand for another parting which they were loath to make. Soon Celeborn and Galadriel and their folk would turn eastward and so pass by the Red Horn Gate and down the Dimral Stair to the Silverlode and to the own country. They had journeyed thus far by the west ways, for they had much to speak of with Elrond and with Gandalf, and here they lingered still in converse with their friends. Often long after the hobbits were wrapped in sleep, they would sit together under the stars, recalling the ages that were gone and all their joys and labours in the world, or holding counsel concerning the days to come. If any wanderer had chanced to pass, little would have been seen or heard, and it would have seemed to him only that he saw grey figures carved in stone, memorials of forgotten things now lost in unpeopled lands." for they did not move or speak with mouth, looking from mind to mind, and only their shining eyes stirred and kindled as their thoughts went to and fro. But at length all was said, and they parted again for a while, until it was time for the three rings to pass away. Quickly fading into the stones and the shadows, the grey-cloaked people of Lorien rode toward the mountains, and those who were going to Rivendell sat on the hill and watched, until there came out of the gathering mist a flash, and then they saw no more. Frodo knew that Galadriel had held aloft her ring in token of the farewell. Sam turned away and sighed. I wish I was going back to Lorien. At last, one evening, they came over the high moors, suddenly as to travellers as it always seemed, to the brink of the deep valley of Rivendell, and saw far below the lamps shining in Elrond's house. And they went down and crossed the bridge and came to the doors, and all the house was filled with light and song for joy at Elrond's homecoming. First of all, before they had eaten or washed or even shed their cloaks, the hobbits went in search of Bilbo. They found him all alone in his little room. It was littered with papers and pens and pencils, but Bilbo was sitting in a chair before a small, bright fire. 
He looked very old, but peaceful and sleepy. He opened his eyes and looked up as they came in. Hello, hello, he said. So you've come back, and tomorrow's my birthday, too. How clever of you. Do you know I shall be 129, and in one year more, if I am spared, I shall equal the old took. I should like to beat him, but we shall see. So the parting of Celeborn and Galadriel. Of course, let's note first this uh, this council that is held before the final parting. Well, not the final parting. In fact, they're going to hang out again two years from now in uh, 2021 of the Third Age when they all depart into the West. Like, no spoilers. We get the acknowledgement of that here. Uh, but at length, all of a sudden, they parted again for a while until it was time for the Three Rings to pass away. The passing of the Three Rings into the West will be the, like the formal uh, post-Hawk dividing line between the Third and Fourth Ages of Middle-Earth, even though, as Gandalf has already acknowledged, we are like immediately, like right now, in the Fourth Age as far as he is concerned. So they sit together, right? Often long after the hobbits were wrapped in sleep, they would sit together under the stars, recalling the ages that were gone and all their joys and labors in the world, or holding counsel concerning the days to come. If any wanderer had chanced to pass, little would he have seen or heard, and it would have seemed to him only that he saw grey figures carved in stone, memorials of forgotten things now lost in unpeopled lands. For they did not move or speak with math, looking from mind to mind, and only their shining eyes stirred and kindled as their thoughts went to and fro. So Elrond, Gandalf, Galadriel, the three remaining good members of the White Council here, uh, in close communion, in, in empathic, telepathic communion, in spiritual communion, as they face the end of their time in Middle-earth. And then Celeborn and Galadriel depart. They travel east toward uh, toward Moria. And you'll note that description. You'll note how... how uh, how uh, casual that is that we get right here at the top. Soon, Celeborn and Galadriel and their folk would turn eastward and so pass by the Redhorn Gate and down the Dimral Stair to the Silverlode and to their own country. Oh, so they're going to go through the Red Hill, uh, the Redhorn Gate and then down the Dimral Stair, which is, of course, in Dimral Vale on the eastern side of the Misty Mountains. No mention of them crossing through Moria here. Like, we're not worried about them crossing through Moria at all, of course. Galadriel and Celeborn have spent a certain amount of time in Moria back when it was actually thriving, before it was Moria, right? <laughs> back when it was actually thriving. That was how they went to Lothlorien in the first place, in fact. So this is not the first time that they have made that journey. But Moria is now safe, presumably, right? Moria is at least... At least the shadow of Sauron is not within the depths of Moria anymore, right? There may be some orcs there still lingering, but... Well, Celeborn and Galadriel and their uh, their accompaniment have had some great experience fighting orcs of late, driving back the three great assaults against Lothlorien during the War of the Ring. So they pass. Frodo knew that Galadriel had held aloft her ring in token of farewell, right? Akin to Aragorn holding aloft the elf stone and, and that flash of green as he departs too. And then Sam, of course, Sam turned away inside. I wish I was going back to Lorien. Like, even in this moment, even here, as they're finally, finally getting the there, uh, getting the back again part of their there and back again journey, right? Even as they're about to get to Rivendell, even as they're about to return to the Shire, even as Sam is worried about the South Farthing, as he just acknowledged in the last slide, even now there is a tug within Sam to return to Lothlorien and to go and spend some more time with Galadriel and to go and spend some more time with the Malarin trees and go and see it all. Elves, sir! Says Sam silently, yes, I wish I was going back to back to Lorien. And then look at this cut, right? Sam turned away and sighed, I wish I was going back to Lorien. At last one evening they came over the high moors, suddenly as to travellers it always seemed, to the brink of the deep valley of Rivendell. We're back, 
this is it. Look how fast this is. After all of the traveling that we've had since uh, since departing Minas Tirith, since departing Edoras and the uh, the funeral of Theoden King, since departing Isengard and our, our meeting with Treebeard, since leaving Saruman behind on the road, look how fast we get to Rivendell. And of course, we go straight to find uh, straight to find Bilbo. And you'll note too, like how hobbity that first line is. First of all, before they had eaten or washed or even shed their cloaks. Hey, we're talking about hobbits, you guys. Before they had eaten or washed or shed their cloaks, before they had engaged in any kind of comfort whatsoever, they go to find Bilbo. This is how important being reunited with Bilbo is. They find him alone in his little room. It was littered with papers and pens and pencils, but Bilbo was sitting in a chair by a small bright fire. He looked very old, but peaceful and sleepy. Hello, hello, he said. So you've come back, and tomorrow is my birthday too. How clever of you. Do you know I shall be 129, and in one more year, if I am spared, I shall equal the old Took. I should like to beat him, but we shall see. That acknowledgement of Bilbo here that his time too is coming to an end. We've already prefaced this a little bit, of course, with uh, Arwen's commentary about why Bilbo didn't come to Minas Tirith for the wedding in the first place, why he didn't accompany Arwen and Elrond all the way south. He has one last great journey to make, but we'll get to it there. Um, so this is, uh, yes, September the 21st, of course, uh, 61 days after leaving Minas Tirith. This is against the, uh, against the 74 days. So when we're traveling down to Minas Tirith in the first place, right, the first people, we all leave Rivendell at the same time, of course, but the first people to get to Minas Tirith are Gandalf and Pippin, and they make that journey in 74 days at the start of the year. Now in September, it has taken us 61 days to travel all the way back north, though we've had, you know, <laughs> we spent a week camping out in Holland, right? Just hanging out by the uh, hanging out by the mines of Moria there. Though, of course, on the way down, we also had a few things to deal with, you know, uh, shortcuts and long delays, um, shadow facts, I suppose, speeding things up a little bit, kidnapping by orcs, the timelessness of Lothlorien, you know, the small matter of Gandalf's death and resurrection. You know, it's, it's not an apples to apples comparison, but 74 days to travel from Rivendell to Minas Tirith in the first place, 61 days to travel from Minas Tirith to Rivendell as we're returning home. Now, I'm looking nervously at the clock and realizing I'm probably not going to get through all of my slides, but we are at least going to make a sterling effort tonight. A fortnight passes. When nearly a fortnight has pa had passed, Frodo looked out of his window and saw that there must have been a frost in the night and the cobwebs were like white gnats. Then suddenly he knew he must go and say goodbye to Bilbo. The weather was still calm and fair after one of the most lovely summers the people could remember. But October had come, and it must break soon and begin to rain and blow again, and there was still a very long way to go. Yet it was not really the thought of the weather that stirred him. He had a feeling that it was time he went back to the Shire. Sam shared it. Only the night before he had said, "'Well, Mr. Frodo, we've been far and seen a deal, and yet I don't think we found a better place than this. There's something of everything here, if you understand me. The Shire and the Golden Wood and Gondor and King's Houses and Inns and Meadows and Mountains all mixed, and yet, somehow, I feel we ought to be going soon. I'm worried about my gaffer, to tell you the truth.' "'Yes, something of everything, Sam, except the sea.' Frodo had answered, and he repeated it now to himself. Except the sea. That day Frodo spoke to Elrond, and it was agreed they should leave the next morning. To their delight, Gandalf said, I think I should come too, at least as far as Bree. I want to see Butterbur. In the evening they went to say goodbye to Bilbo. Well, if you must go, you must, he said. I am sorry, I shall miss you. It is nice just to know that you are about the place, but I am getting very sleepy. Then he gave Frodo his mithril coat and sting forgetting that he had already done so, and he gave him also three books of lore that he had made at various times, written in his spidery hand and labelled on their red backs, translations from the Elvish by B.B. 
To Sam he gave a little bag of gold. Almost the last drop of the Smaug vintage, he said. May come in useful. If you're thinking of getting married, Sam. Sam blushed. Okay, let's talk about the sea, I suppose. <laughs> Since we're going to break our hearts here in this slide, let's start with the sea, shall we? I mentioned in last week's reading that Arwen's acknowledgement to Frodo, Arwen's gift to Frodo in the first instance, right? I am making Luthien's choice. I am not going to go into the West with my father. You can have my place on the ship. If ever your wound becomes too much, if ever your burden is too great to bear, if ever the pain is too great, then you can go into the West. And that is the first acknowledgement that we get that, Actually, Frodo may not heal. Actually, Frodo's story may not be the there and back again story which is being presented to us. Now, of course, we've long since made our peace with the fact that Frodo's story is not going to be a there and back again story, but we thought that it would end on the flank of Orodorum. We thought that it would end if he was lucky at the cracks of doom themselves. But now it seems that there's something darker, that the cost that Frodo has paid and will continue to pay is simply too great. And now, having been given this offer, now having been made this gift he starts to hear it too. He starts to hear the lure of the sea. This is just like Legolas back in Minas Tirith. This is just like Legolas on the banks of the Anduin, right near the, the Bay of Belfalas. This is just like Legolas being caught up in the song and the sound and the, the desire for the sea. Now Frodo's feeling it too. Yes, something of everything, Sam, except the sea. And of course, Rivendell doesn't have anything of the sea. If Rivendell had anything of the sea, Rivendell would have been empty centuries ago, right? Like, you can't remind elves of the sea because as soon as you do, that's it. As, they're always, always, even the, the most landlocked elf that ever was is always, always going to depart Middle-earth and go into the West. But elves that are reminded of the sea, well, they find it nigh irresistible. They find it impossible to deny for very long. That Legolas is going to linger for 150 years, which is just nothing, nothing in the span of an elven life, right? But Frodo now has been reminded of the sea, too, and he is missing it. Something of everything, Sam, except the sea, Frodo had answered, and he repeated it now to himself, except the sea. So they go and they make their plans, and Bilbo is sorry to see them go. No thought of Bilbo returning to the Shire, of course, either at this point. He himself acknowledges implicitly here that he has that one last journey to make. Then he gave Frodo his mithril coat and sting, forgetting that he had already done so, right? We're seeing the burden of years now present upon Bilbo, that he is is slipping into, into a dotage, slipping into an old age here, his mind not as sharp, perhaps, as once it was. Then he, uh, then he gave him also three books of lore that he had made at various times, written in his spidery hand and labeled on their red backs, translations from the Elb Elvish by B.B., these are the books that are going to be significant, right? These are the books that are going to, in effect, be passed down to us in the form of the Lord of the Rings, in the form of the Hobbit, in the form of the Silmarillion. These are the texts. These are the stories written by Bilbo, which we've discussed all the way from the beginning of the Hobbit, right? This this, this textual frame that Professor Tolkien has placed around the uh, around his legendarium, not as powerful or as fixed as the original textual frames that he placed around, right? The, the stories of the Silmarillion were originally supposed to be like transcriptions of Anglo-Saxon legends that were, that were given to, uh, uh, told to an Anglo-Saxon storyteller by the elves themselves, right? After he had taken the straight road into the west. We're not quite doing that. It's not quite that forcible, but this is the book that you are holding, or these are the origin texts, I suppose, for the book that you are holding. And to Sam, he gave a little bag of gold, almost the last drop of the Smaug vintage. He said, wow, Bilbo, you have made that money last i tell you all right that that money that you that you uh brought back from smaug and the lonely mountain like pretty good this is this is good solid erebor gold and you are not going to be needing it uh from this point onward may come in useful if you think of getting married it's uh it's just lovely yeah let me uh 
Catch up. Sea Star saying, can't much sympathize with sea desiring people who feel destined to go to the sea. I want the sea and I have no desire of seeing it again. I think that was probably a typo. I didn't think, I, I don't imagine Sea Star that you meant to slip into that uh, golemish register. That, I want the sea. Fresh fish from the sea three times a day. The golem. Yes. Okay. Uh, Joseph has just shown up. Joseph is joining us uh, a little late this evening, but yeah, we can start over. Joseph, that's no problem. Um, welcome everyone to session 71 of their big... <laughs> It would be it would be pretty strong to commit to that bit. I am just making jokes now to try and you know bring some levity to the proceedings and not, as I say, get get a little misty here at the at the parting from uh, from Rivendell. Yeah, Nine Princes says uh, tears all round for joy and sadness for relief and regret. There's a lot going on here and it really covers the range of human emotion from unimaginable victory to inevitable loss. Nine Princes, you're completely right. That is what gives this its beauty is that complexity. It's just so, so powerful. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Angela saying, Bilbo got free room and board at Rivendell. I don't know that I would say free. I don't know that I would say that it was, it was, uh, that it was completely charity. I think that Bilbo's been writing his poetry, right? He's been translating from the office. He's been undertaking good and important work. It's more like a MacArthur genius grant, I suppose, than it is, uh, than it is charity to Bilbo here, but yes. Good. Um, <laughs> oh no, Seastar says, of course I meant it. I wants the sea like Gollum wants the ring. Gollum wanted the sea too and never had a chance to go there. No, that's heartbreaking, Seastar. <laughs> <laughs> we are too busy feeling sorry for hobbits and elves and Gandalf here. We don't have time. In this reading, we don't have time to feel sorry for Gollum too, right? He made his choice. He made his choices. Um, okay, let's get to our, our uh, poetry for this week. We've got uh, one short little, little slip of poetry here, which is, of course, very important poetry. We're going to do a little compare and contrast in just a moment, but let's get right to it. Uh, this is after Bilbo asks after the ring, right? A another another indication that Bilbo's mind is, is losing some of its security, some of its previous security, and that the long years of his life are catching up with him now that the ring has been destroyed. He asks about the ring and Frodo says, I've lost it, Bilbo dear, said Frodo. I got rid of it, you know. What a pity, said Bilbo. I should have liked to see it again. But no, how silly of me. That's what you went for, wasn't it? To get rid of it. Oh, but it's all so confusing, for such a lot of other things seem to have got mixed up with it. Aragorn's affairs, and the White Council, and Gondor, and the Horsemen, and Southrons, and Oliphants. Did you really see one, Sam? And caves, and towers, and golden trees, and goodness knows what besides. I evidently came back by much too straight a road from my trip. I think Gandalf might have shown me round a bit. But then the auction would have been over before I got back, and I should have had even more trouble than I did. Anyway, it's too late now. And really, I think it's much more comfortable to sit here and hear all about it. The fire's very cozy here, and the food's very good, and there are elves when you want them. What more could one want? The road goes ever on and on, out from the door where it began. Now far ahead the road has gone. Let others follow it who can. Let them a journey new begin. But I at last, with weary feet, will turn toward the lighted inn, my evening rest and sleep to meet. And as Bilbo murmured the last words, his head dropped onto his chest, and he slept soundly. A recapitulation here of The Road Goes Ever On and On. The most frequently, uh, frequently quoted, frequently repeated, frequently recapitulated piece of poetry in uh, all of Tolkien's works. In fact, this is the fourth time that we get a version of, a variation of The Road Goes Ever On and On. And it is, well, by far the most heartbreaking, by far the most heartbreaking, because, of course, The Road has left Bilbo behind 
as the road inevitably does. Let's take a look. I've actually compiled a slide here with the other versions of The Road Goes Ever On and On, going all the way back to The Hobbit. You'll recall, of course, Bilbo spontaneously composing this bit of poetry as he is on the back-again stage of his there-and-back-again journey from Erebor. He sings, Roads go ever, ever on, over rock and under tree, by caves where never sun has shone, by streams that never find the sea, over snow by winter sown, and through the merry flowers of June, over grass and over stone and under mountains in the moon. Roads go ever, ever on, under cloud and under star, yet feet that wandering have gone turn at last to home afar, eyes that fire and sword have seen, and horror in the halls of stone. Look at last on meadows green, and trees and hills they long have known. That is Bilbo's homecoming song, right? The road runs on forever. Of course it does. There is nothing that can stop the road, right? Uh, by uh, In winter and in June, over grass, over stone, under mountains, uh, under cloud, under star, yet the wanderings, uh, yet feet that wandering have gone, turn at last to home afar. Eyes that fire and sword have seen and horror in the halls of stone. Look at last on meadows green and trees and hills they long have known, right? That is the poem as it is presented to us in the pages of The Hobbit. This is a homecoming song that Bilbo is singing. It is a homecoming song that has united the took and bag inside of his character, because that is, of course, the point of The Hobbit. It is about adventure and about wandering and about the goodness of the road, how great the road, the journey, the adventure is, but also the comforts of home, that eventually you get tired and you, you, you turn to home afar, right? The trees and hills they long have known. Then we get another version of uh, of this poem, of this song, presented to us in the very first chapter of The Lord of the Rings as Bilbo is departing. And you'll note the shift here, right? Roads go ever, ever on is the uh, the first line in the Hobbit version, but that, by the time that we get to The Lord of the Rings, has been altered slightly. The road goes ever on and on. Moving from roads to the road, acknowledging that, in effect, all journeys are one journey, all paths are one path, all adventures are one adventure, all stories. Hey, Sam are one story. That is the acknowledgement that is indicated by that shift in the article there. The road goes ever on and on, down from the door where it began. Now far ahead the road has gone and I must follow if I can, pursuing it with eager feet until it joins some larger way, where many paths and errands meet, and whither then? I cannot say. This is a song for the beginning of a journey, for the beginning of an adventure. The road goes ever on and on and it has left me behind. Now far ahead the road has gone and I must follow if I can, pursuing it with eager feet. Right? He's ready to go. Let's do this thing. Where, uh, until it joins some larger way where many paths and Aaron's meet and whither then I cannot say I am setting off on this journey I am setting off on the road but just because it is a road doesn't mean that it is single doesn't mean that it is fixed doesn't mean that it is it is unified or that the outcome is inevitable it is going to tangle with other roads it is you know for all that it is the road the the road symbolically is a recognition that all stories are part of one story, that all experiences are part of one experience, but there are other directions that you can go. There are other places that are all still the road, but they will run together and, and who knows what will happen. Then, of course, Frodo repeats this in the third chapter of the first book, but he changes one word, one crucial word. The road goes ever on and on, Frodo says, down from the door where it began, now far ahead the road has gone, the road has gone and I must follow if I can, pursuing it with weary feet until it joins some larger way where many paths and errands meet and whether then I cannot say. He switches out the eager feet of Bilbo's poem for weary feet. He is already at this point, even as he is still in the Shire, he is already at this point daunted by his journey in a way that Bilbo never was. Or, or never was, was of course, back originally in the pages of The Hobbit, but Bilbo certainly wasn't when he was leaving the Shire for for the 
penultimate time, I suppose, right? When Bilbo is going off to Rivendell, having surrendered his ring, having celebrated his 111st birthday, he is eager for this journey. He's eager for another another adventure. Frodo is not. Frodo transitions this into weary feet, and that changes the the cadence and the texture of the entire poem. And now we get, all the way in uh, chapter six of book six, we get Bilbo's repetition here. The road goes ever on and on, out from the door where it began. Now far ahead the road has gone, let others follow it who can. Let them a journey new begin, but I at last with weary feet will turn toward the lighted in my evening rest and sleep to meet. He is echoing Frodo's weary feet, not consciously, of course. And you'll remember, of course, that when Frodo recites this bit of poetry in the third chapter of The Fellowship of the Ring, he is asked, hey, is that uh, one of yours? Did you just make that up? Is that like spontaneous Frodo poetry? Because that was pretty good. And he's like, no, I think... It, it feels like Bilbo's, and maybe I heard it once. There's no indication that he did ever hear it, in fact. There's no indication that he was consciously aware of this poem, and certainly wasn't consciously aware of the edit that he was making to Bilbo's poem, but he is, you know, repeating that same that same core idea, that same thematic idea that, that Bilbo laid out. And it's entirely possible, of course, that in some year of his youth, Bilbo did sing to him, the road goes ever on and on, and he just kind of absorbed it osmotically, he absorbed it sponge-like and just regurgitated it at that point, but with that that careful twist, that careful cadence. So now what has happened? Well, the road remains. The road goes ever on and on. We get in all three of these latter versions, right? Roads go ever, ever on in the first version. Out from the door where it began, changing from down from the door where it began, but out from the door where it began. Now far ahead, the road has gone, again, now repeating both previous versions of this song, let others follow it who can. Not, and I must follow if I can. Let others follow it who can. Let them a journey new begin, but I at last with weary feet will turn toward the lighted inn, my evening rest and sleep to meet. Will turn toward, he's turning away from the road, and if the road is all roads, and if the adventure is all adventures, and if the story is all stories, then that turning away indicates, well, that Bilbo knows what is coming. That Bilbo understands. That this isn't just a simple desire for sleep here in the houses of the elves. That this isn't just... Oh, it's been a long day and I'm pretty wiped out from hearing all of your crazy adventures, let me tell you. Uh, I'm just going to take a nap and then, uh, like, waffles for breakfast? Let's do waffles for breakfast, right? Do we know for sure that hobbits have invented waffles? I don't think that I don't think we've had acknowledgement of that, but let's assume. Let's assume that they have. Um, I, I can't imagine that hobbits, given their fascination with comfort and the finest things in life, would have overlooked the humble waffle. That seems like something they would have uh, absolutely put together. Yeah, random comments are saying, I love the quote, all stories are one story theme, especially how it gets spelled out in on fairy stories. It reminds me of the concept in Christian circles, especially the phrasing in Lutheran ones, that all theology is Christology. Yeah, this is, and I don't think that that's a... Um, I don't. Th I want to kind of carefully choose my word here. I don't think that that is an unintentional uh, bit of 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 reflection there. Random comments. I don't think that that. I don't think that Tolkien's belief that fairy stories in the simplest sense, fantasy stories in a slightly broader sense, but all storytelling, like, and, and beyond that, the creative impulse, right? The, the creative impulse is one and the same, whether you are telling fairy stories or sculpting or, you know, making boats or whatever your creative impulse is, that it is a reflection of the same creative impulse, right? It is a, it is part of that same, uh, that creative light that fills us as children of God in Tolkien's conception. I don't think that it is a coincidence, I'll put it that way, that, that unification is repeated in other more explicitly theological uh, contexts, right? I think that the unification of 
theology, like the biggest sense, that the, the, the study of religious texts in particular, like of religious stories, of course, giving us part of that overlap, but the study of religious texts is the study of a singular thing, regardless of which text you're studying or which uh, tradition you come from or which, which uh, you know, formal pieces of, of tradition or of, of uh, dogmatic principle you apply. Uh, yeah, I think that's, I think we're seeing um, facets of the same core idea there, which is simply that there is, again, in Tolkien's conception, a single unified God, and everything flows forth from that single unified God. And we, as I've said before, uh, taking from, from Tolkien's language in Mythopoeia and from on fairy stories, that we refract that light, that it is, that there is at the core of all things a simple and indivisible unity. That seems to be part, but that single and indivisible unity is represented, is is made manifest in the world in infinite variety and diversity, right? That is, Tolkien, yes, believed that we were all connected and all illuminated by that same light, but of course the value of the crystal is in the crystal itself. The value of the refraction of the light is unique. It is, it is like a fingerprint. It is something that you can only tell the stories that you can tell, right? You are the only one who can tell your story. You are the only one who can have your experiences. You are the only one who can follow your road. Well, let's get back to it because I'm desperately running out of time here. But yes, yes, this is um, <laughs> James Broken Hero saying, Mary and Pippin go to Waffle House coming this fall from Amazon. That's the Amazon series that they're developing. I knew it was going to be something good. Like, I'm, I'm super into it. My dinner with Pippin. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm into that. Yeah. Um, good, good. Uh, Marshall saying, I don't think there's ever been a series where the author so carefully considered his fictional world and went to so much length to ensure it aligned properly with his own theology and morality. I love it. I completely agree, Marshall. This is one of the reasons that Professor Tolkien is exceptional. One of the reasons that Lord of the Rings is probably, you know, particularly in terms of fantasy, the most important work that there is, right? I, I, there is a reason that all modern fantasy is to a greater or lesser extent. Let me be a little more hesitant there. That all modern fantasy in the Western fantasy tradition is to some degree derivative of, uh, derivative of Tolkien. And I don't even use derivative in a negative connotation there. I don't associate that with a negative connotation there. And I don't think that the professor would either, right? The idea of stories being retold, he's all in favor of that. That's that's part of the, the, the textual frame around The Lord of the Rings in the first place. It is important, you'll remember, as we were discussing just a couple of weeks ago, that, that he doesn't necessarily want to imprint the specifics of his own Catholic theology on the Lord of the Rings, right? He doesn't need to reflect the specifics of, of that theology or of that doctrine or of that, I think in particular, that that theological tradition, right? He doesn't need to look at the works that have been written on on Christian theology, on, on uh, Catholicism in particular, and make the Lord of the Rings reflective of those texts. He's allowed to and and embraces the the uh the the possibility of returning to first principles, right? That is that is what he does. He cuts all the way back to first principles and then builds out from there. That is one of the things that we can do as creative individuals. Okay, let's um now we're just talking about Waffle House in the chat. You guys, you guys, I, I have been to a Waffle House uh once, once in my life, I have been to a Waffle House and I only got coffee, which I feel is a, a, a stark betrayal. So some fine day, now that I'm here in Oklahoma City, I, I guess we don't have that many Waffle Houses. The Waffle House is like a Southeastern thing, right? Are they like everywhere in the Southeast? I, I, when I think of Waffle Houses, I think of like the Carolinas. That's that's what I associate them with, but I have no idea. Maybe, maybe I'll, I'll find out about that. A Southern thing confirms Nikki. Excellent. All right. And Barry Gukhan, of course, who is far to the east of me here in Oklahoma City is saying, I'll make breakfast after the Crowdcast suggestions. Uh, breakfast food is always the best food, you guys. Always the best food. All right. Let us say farewell to Rivendell. Let us get to the end of chapter six here. 
The evening deepened in the room, and the firelight burned brighter, and they looked at Bilbo as he slept and saw that his face was smiling. For some time they sat in silence, and then Sam, looking round at the room and the shadows flickering on the walls, said softly, "'I don't think, Mr. Frodo, that he's done much writing while we've been away. He won't ever write our story now.' At that Bilbo opened an eye, almost as if he had heard. Then he roused himself. "'You see, I'm getting so sleepy,' he said. "'And when I have time to write, I only really like writing poetry.' I wonder, Frodo, my dear fellow, if you would very mind tidying up things a bit before you go. Collect all my notes and papers and my diary, too, and take them with you, if you will. You see, I haven't much time for the selection and the arrangement and all that. Get Sam to help, and when you've knocked things into shape, come back and I'll run over it. I won't be too critical. Of course I'll do it, said Frodo, and of course I'll come back soon. It won't be dangerous any more. There's a real king now, and he will soon put the roads in order. Thank you, my dear fellow, said Bilbo. That really is a very great relief to my mind. And with that, he fell asleep again. The next day, Gandalf and the hobbits took leave of Bilbo in his room, for it was cold out of doors, and then they said farewell to Elrond and all of his household. As Frodo stood upon the threshold, Elrond wished him a fair journey and blessed him, and he said, I think, Frodo, that maybe you will not need to come back unless you come very soon, for about this time of the year, when the leaves are gold before they fall, look for Bilbo in the woods of the Shire. I shall be with him. These words no one else heard, and Frodo kept them to himself. I am always skeptical, as you guys know, here 72 sessions into our series. <laughs> I'm always skeptical of layering an autobiographical attribution over the text of The Lord of the Rings. I don't ever really want to read The Lord of the Rings and say, aha, here, here we can see the words of the professor. Here we can see his thought. Here we can see his, his own personal outlook. Here, this is self-insertion fiction that is happening here. Bilbo here in this moment represents Professor Tolkien, but... It is tough to read this and not think about Professor Tolkien's untimely demise, right? Not think about the fact that he died with so many stories left untold, that he died with so many fragments of manuscripts left untold. For much of his career, of course, Professor Tolkien, while he was teaching at Oxford, would take advantage of the long summer holidays in particular, the Christmas breaks to a lesser extent, but the long summer holidays in particular, to write. He would write fiction, he would write poetry, he would return again to his legendarium, but because it had been a year in most cases, since he had last written something creative, he generally wouldn't pick up an existing project. He would generally start over. This is why we have so many fragmentary manuscripts uh, from the professor. Not of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, though, by God, we have an innumerable fragmentary manuscripts of those two. But I'm thinking in particular of the deeper Silmarillion stories, right? Of Baron and Luthien, of the Children of Hurin, of all of these tales that, that were compiled after his death by his son Christopher into the Silmarillion, into the Unfinished Tales, into the history of Middle-earth as a whole. I can't read this passage without thinking of that connection. You see, I am getting so sleepy, and when I have time to write, I only really like writing poetry. I wonder, Frodo, my dear fellow, if you would very much mind tidying things up a bit before you go. Collect all my notes and papers and my diary, too, and take them with you, if you will. You see, I haven't much time for the selection and the arrangement and all that. Get Sam to help, and when you've knocked things into shape, come back and I'll run over it. I won't be too critical. I wonder if those words were running through Christopher Tolkien's mind as he prepared The Silmarillion, as he prepared Unfinished Tales, as he prepared all of the many books that have been published since, as he undertook this massive and inutterably admirable piece of academic work, right? Christopher Tolkien has spent his career as 
a custodian of his father's work, of his father's legacy. Every word that Professor Tolkien has written in his entire life, every word that still exists that Professor Tolkien wrote about Middle-earth and about his expanded legendarium has basically now been printed, right? The 12-volume series of the history of the Middle-earth, the Children of Hurin, the Baron and Luthien book, the Fall of Gondolin book that is coming later this year that will almost certainly be Christopher Tolkien's last uh, last piece of collation, his last uh, academic exercise, his last uh, analysis and, and loving representation of his father's work. I wonder if these words echo in the ears of Christopher Tolkien when he sits down to to study his father's writing. They would certainly echo in mine, and they echo in mine every time I look at the history of Middle-earth, every time I look at anything that was published posthumously. Um, it's beautiful. Of course, it's beautiful. The road goes ever on and on. These stories have to be told. They have to be preserved. They have to be written, and Bilbo now can't. The road is leaving him behind. He is going now to his rest. As indicated by Elrond here, I think, Frodo, that maybe you will not need to come back unless you come very soon, for about this time of the year, when the leaves are gold before they fall, look for Bilbo in the woods of the Shire. I shall be with him. These words no one else heard, and Frodo kept them to himself. And it's not as simple as, you've got a year, Frodo, because, of course, Frodo actually has two years. It's not the next autumn that Bilbo is going to uh, take his last journey to the West, and the journey to the West, <laughs> with the initial caps there. It's two years from now, but Frodo will know. Frodo will sense that journey when it begins, and there's a connection there, yeah. Okay, let's, um, oh gosh, it's it's time here. This is terrible. Okay, I've got one question here. Um, I'm just, I'm considering now because this is the end of chapter six. It would be great. You know what? Let's do one more slide. Let's run just a little longer tonight. Let's do one more slide. Let's transition into chapter seven. Let's get into Homeward Bound. And we're going to talk about the events of October the 6th and the crossing of the Loudwater, the crossing of the Bruinen. At last, the hobbits had their faces turned toward home. They were eager now to see the Shire again, but at first they rode only slowly, for Frodo had been ill at ease. When they came to the ford of Bruin and he had halted and seemed loath to ride into the stream, and they noted that for a while his eyes appeared not to see them or things about them. All that day he was silent. It was the 6th of October. "'Are you in pain, Frodo?' said Gandalf quietly as he rode by Frodo's side. "'Well, yes, I am,' said Frodo. "'It is my shoulder. The wound aches, and the memory of darkness is heavy on me. It was a year ago today.' "'Alas, there are some wounds that cannot be wholly cured,' said Gandalf. "'I fear it may be so with mine,' said Frodo. "'There is no real going back. "'Though I may come to the Shire, it will not seem the same, for I shall not be the same. "'I am wounded with knife, sting, and tooth, and a long burden. "'Where shall I find rest?' "'Gandalf did not answer.' And so we see that tug within Frodo already, right? He's already thinking of the sea. On some level, something within him is stirring and pulling him into the West, but he's not conscious of it yet. He's not mindful of it yet. I have been wounded with knife, sting, and tooth. He has been cut by the Witch King of Angmar on Weathertop a year ago today, right? October the 6th in the year 3019. It was October the 6th in the year 3018 where he was first wounded atop Weathertop by, uh, by the Witch King of Angmar. By Sting, of course, Shelob's Sting that has imprisoned him, uh, that, that has imprisoned him, that did imprison him and has, has continued to afflict him. And Tooth, of course, Gollum biting off the ring finger of his left hand and a long burden referring to the ring itself. Where shall I find rest? And Gandalf did not answer. So we've hinted with Arwen and we've hinted with Frodo's 
inclination toward preoccupation with the sea, but this is where we actually confirm our fear or, or begin to confirm our fear, right? Alas, there are some wounds that cannot be wholly cured. I fear it may be so with mine. There is no real going back. Though I may come to the Shire, it will not seem the same, for I shall not be the same. Okay, that's true. The Shire wasn't the same when Bilbo came back to the Shire after his there and back again journey to Erebor, of course, which is why Bilbo has changed the Shire for the better. That is why Merry and Pippin and Frodo and Sam all love stories and adventures and walks and elves the way that they do, right? The reason that Sam knows these stories, the reason that Sam is invested in poetry, the reason that Sam can read and the reason that Sam loves elves is because of the influence of Bilbo, who was transformed by his journey with Thorin and company all the way to the Lonely Mountain and, of course, back again. Everyone is transformed by their journey. Sam is not the same. Merry and Pippin certainly aren't the same. They sure as hell aren't the same. They're six inches taller now, at least. Everyone has been changed by their journey. But Frodo is making specific reference here, right? Though I may come to the Shire, it will not seem the same, for I shall not be the same. I am wounded with knife and sting and tooth and a long burden. Where shall I find rest? The Shire might not be the same, but it will still be home for Merry, for Pippin, for Sam but it's not going to be home for Frodo. He's not going to be able to rest there. He will still bear the wounds that he has suffered. The wound of the Morgul blade, the wound of Shelob's sting, the wound of Gollum's fury, and of course, the long burden of the ring too. Frodo's path, he already understands, even here as they cross the ford of Bruinen, even here Frodo understands that his road, which runs ever on and on, does not end in the Shire. We'll get to The Prancing Pony next week. Next week, we will finish up chapter seven of book six of The Lord of the Rings and move into chapter eight, The Scourging of the Shire. That will be at 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Central next Thursday. That is August the 2nd. I noticed that I had a couple questions here in the chat. Nikki asking, what happens to Bilbo when he gets to Valinor? Does he stay the slow and sleepy old hobbit or is he invigorated with new life as with the Christian perception of heaven? Um, well... I think in order to understand that, Nikki, we have to ask two questions, or, or we have to answer a question that comes in two parts, right? <laughs> what is the source of Bilbo's fatigue? Why is he now the hobbit that he is? Why is he losing his sharpness of mind? Why is he losing his, his zest for life? Why have his feet turned from eager feet to weary feet? Well, there are two reasons that are combined, right? One was the long influence of the ring. That is definitely true. We see him in our first trip to Rivendell back in the Fellowship of the Ring, a slightly changed hobbit, right? He's not quite the Bilbo that we knew back in the Shire. And of course, you know, 17 years have passed at that point. So that makes a certain amount of sense. But he's also manic for the ring. He's also still obsessed and under the sway of the ring. Now he is much, much older. The passing of the ring, the passing of the power of the ring from Middle-earth means that all of his years have caught up with him. He is no longer butter scraped over too much bread, right? The, 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 or I suppose he is, but at least there's, there's no more bread, right? The bread is not continually growing larger, though the butter, that is to say, his, his pool of, of life, his, his essence, his vitality is not being diminished and diminuated still further. He's now just coming to the natural end of his life. Both of these things, I think, by implication, are going to be cured in Valinor. Both of these things are going to be cured is the wrong word. Both of these things are going to be undone in Valinor, I think. Both of these things are going to be as though they never were in Valinor. I think that both the age of his body and the fatigue of his spirit, and most importantly, the burden of the ring, they are going to be undone. That is the purpose of sending Frodo 
into the West, right? That is, that is why Frodo goes into the West. That is what Arwen says. If this burden is too much, if this pain is too much, if this grief is too much, then go into the West and it's going to be all right. I promise. Like that is, that seems to me to be implicit in the promise. What happens to Bilbo and Frodo in the Undying Lands in the West? Well, we just don't know. We, we have no record of that, of course, because those stories would never have been told. But yeah, my, uh, my, my guess would be that they become something other than they are, but also retain what makes them hobbits, retain what makes them individuals, and become restored and joyous again. This is why the going into the West, although it is tragic, it is it is beautiful, right? It is joy and sadness combined. It is it is beauty in the Tolkienian sense, would be my argument there. Uh, James is asking, let me cancel that slide too so I can come back to you here. James is asking, read Galadriel taking the ship before Celeborn. This might be a better question for the segments of the Silmarillion, but when elves take the straight road to Valinor, what actually happens? Is there still physical existence over there where Celeborn and Galadriel, and by extension other characters that take the, sh take the ships, could meet up again? Or is it more of a spiritual and metaphysical existence where they stop being themselves and can't continue the relationships they maintained before? Um... Is it physical now? Uh, okay. Was it physical? Yes. Right. We, we can be pretty sure that Valinor was a physical place. The Undying Lands were physically located on Arda back in the day. Following the uh, the, the ruinous uh, crusade by Arpharazon and the sinking of Numenor, when Valinor and the Undying Lands are removed from, from Arda, they are removed from the planet. They are they are cast into fairy properly, right? They are they're not like removed from Arda in the sense that they are now they're now in a low Arda orbit, like in a geostationary low Arda orbit over where Numenor once lay. No, they are they are in fairy. They are in this other realm. Um, the straight road, the, the passing into the west, is not a physical journey as well. It is a physical journey. Of course, but it is a it is a magical journey. It is not a simple you know act of of, of geography. When um, when Iluvatar cracks the earth and sinks Numenor, one of the things that he does is make the world round, so that if you try and sail into the west now from Middle Earth, you will just end up in the Eastern Lands. Right, that is the moment at which Arda becomes a globe. Prior to that, it was it was flat in in Tolkien's original conception. So that's a piece of of fairly sophisticated kind of explanatory mythology that that he puts in place there. Um, is Valinor still physical? I'm inclined to say yes, because of the associations between Valinor and fairy. Is it physical in the way that Middle Earth is physical? No. But I would argue that it is. My conception of Valinor, right, at this point in the history of Middle-earth, has always been that, that Valinor is to Lothlorien as Lothlorien is to the Shire, right? <laughs> is to, is to Osgiliath, right? Is to some very, is to Edoras, right? Is to some very mundane place. And, and I'm hesitant there about the Shire because of course the Shire is possessed of a magic kind of all of its own, a kind of otherworldly fairy magic. So, so let's take Edoras, right? Let's take, let's take Edoras and the, uh, the land of the Rohirrim in general as the most mundane place on Middle Earth right now, right? It is, it is the least magical and most like anchored place because it doesn't even have like the ancient tree of Gondor. It doesn't even have like the blood of Numenor flowing in it the way that Gondor does. So let's take Rohan as being the most mundane place on Middle-earth right now, as Lothlorien is to Rohan in terms of its otherworldliness, in terms of its etherealness, in terms of its separation spatially and temporally, right? Remember how time is weird when you when you cross the Silverload into uh, into Lothlorien? Remember how we, we spend like a weird amount of time and Sam, when they leave, is noting like, wait, the moon isn't right. How long did we spend in there? I think that Valinor is to Lothlorien as Lothlorien is to Rohan, but this is entirely speculation uh, on my part, and this is speculation developed from an understanding of Valinor and the Undying Lands as as an extension of fairy. No, not an extension of fairy, as a foundation for fairy, in a sense, right? 
part of Tolkien's textual conception here is that all of the fairy stories that we tell take place in the shadow of this fairy story, take place in the shadow of stories of elves and dwarves and hobbits. That is how we get to our modern era, by which we mean everything after the 16th century, how we get to our modern era uh, fairy stories. That, that's where they spring from, is that, that this is a consistent uh, a consistent piece of world building, if you like. So my guess would be that, yeah, Valinor is is deep fairy. It is, it is capital F fairy, but it is still physical, right? I think that I think that our characters are physically present there, but not in a way that is as temporally anchored or even necessarily as experientially anchored as their time in Middle-earth, even as their time in Lothlorien, right? If if time and space and and food and drink and music and song and love are are weird and heightened and slightly otherworldly in Lothlorien, then my guess is that that Valinor is that plus plus that that is is exponentially heightened. I don't know what do, what do you guys think here? Um, yeah, Sea Star is saying Arda was originally flat. Yeah, Arda was flat in its creation. It's it's flat until the 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 sinking of Numenor in the Second Age. There, yeah. Um, let me see here as I try and scroll back. Um, James Broken here is saying that the discussions of the fairy in your podcast have given me a better understanding of previous readings. Oh, I'm, I'm thrilled for that. That's that's wonderful. Yeah. Um, gosh, we're talking about a number of things. <laughs> yeah, Varig of Khan says, Valinorian real estate has become unaffordable. Yeah, I think it's probably an infinite amount of space there. I don't know. It's, yeah, yeah. Um, good. Okay. I think that is going to do it, you guys. I think that is going to uh, that's going to finish our discussion tonight. This has been an absolute pleasure. This has been really fun. I, I've never had the opportunity to talk extensively about the end of uh, the end of the Return of the King. So this obviously is is joyous and and tragic and beautiful for that, right? Like, like beauty and joy combined, that is where we get, be- uh, sorry, uh, sadness and joy combined, that is where we get beauty in the Tolkienian schema. This is extremely beautiful because of that excess of both joy and beauty. And we've got a lot, um, a lot more to discuss. Next week we'll finish up chapter seven. We'll do the scourging of the Shire. We'll okay. Next week we'll finish up chapter seven, and we'll do half of the scourging of the Shire. Then the following week we'll do the last half of the scourging of the Shire, and then we'll do uh, the Grey Havens. Of course, that'll take us to the end of the Lord of the Rings proper, as it were. We'll still talk about the appendices, as I mentioned at the beginning of tonight's session. If you are interested in our production schedule, then head on over to the show notes and click the link that will take you to the production schedule, which has just been updated. Don't worry about the dates you know, a couple of months previous to this because I had to do some fast footwork to note exactly when we got where we are now, but uh, everything is laid out and you'll see there the uh, plan for covering um, all of the movies and the plan for covering the Silmarillion too. That wildly optimistic plan for covering the Silmarillion, which I mentioned back at the beginning of tonight's session. Guys, this has been an absolute pleasure. I hope you all have a fantastic week. 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Central next week. That is August 2nd. I hope you will all be able to join me. Oh, and uh, yes, I'm thinking still, I know that we mentioned this last week, but I'm thinking still of the animated movie I figure if we're going to talk about the movies, we might as well talk about all the movies, right? It might even be really interesting to do... I might do one lecture about the video game history of The Lord of the Rings. I think that could be really fun and really interesting because, of course... The Hobbit in particular, but The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings have been hugely influential over video games right from the beginning. And we can talk certainly about the influence of uh, the influence of J.R.R. Tolkien on Gary Gygax with the formulations uh, of Dungeons and Dragons back in the day. So I think that the influence of Tolkien in a wider world would also make for a really, really fascinating lecture uh, a little down the road. So we'll talk about all of that too. Don't worry, if there is a thing to discuss when it comes to Professor Tolkien, we will discuss it here on There and Back again. Thank you all for your company. Thank you all for uh, your brilliance and your insight this evening. I will talk to you all again next week. Until then... Fly, you fools! Fly, you fools!